is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DeVirginia. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Hello and welcome to 2020, Gator Nation. What's up? My name is Alan Williams, right here with James DeVirgilio. It's a new year. Same Gator greatness, though. we got a fun episode for you guys. We're going to break down everything that happened in the Orange Bowl and tell you our thoughts on the championship game and all the other stuff that's been going on. James, what's been going on with you? I'm, ex- I'm enjoying the new decade, Alan. Let's go. 2020, also, you only get this once every 100 years, right? Where the year, the start of the year matches the end of the year. Am I right on that? Yeah, yeah right? I 2020, guess so. 1919, whatever. So we're in that year, 2020. Uh, it's got to be a special year. Hopefully it will be a special year for the Gators, which we've been hinting at. It's going to be a big year. There's going to be a lot of stuff to cover this offseason. We will be broadcasting all offseason long. And if you've noticed, you really have no idea when we're going to drop an episode because we ourselves don't have any idea. We kind of wait and news happens, things happen, and we say, we're going to do it. So in the regular season, it's like clockwork every single Monday. And the offseason, consider it the Christmas that doesn't stop really until July. It's going to be whenever it will be. On this episode, we are going to cover the Virginia game, a little more meta than we normally do because bowl games don't mean as much. We'll take away some of the thoughts for next season and heading into spring ball. And then we'll talk about all the news. There has been some news going on with the program. Cover the bowl games, cover the championship game, and a few other fun things for you. We will be on the air next after National Signing Day. We used to do things before National Signing Day, but in reality... We like to cover what we've been covering, kind of our tier system, what we look at, what we think about. And it's not that important to cover what happens beforehand. There are other outlets that do a better job of of, covering every individual player, every movement. If you like that, find that. For us, we want to look at how well we did and compare that to how well everyone else did. As always, if you like the content, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, hit us up on social media, become a patron on Patreon. We love our donos. We had a Christmas Day dono. From Let's an go. A Merry Christmas. McCollum. So Merry Christmas to you as well, A McCollum. Thank you for the dono. And still on the throne, Alexander Leventhal. Of course, you too can come for his throne. Again, as a refresher, the way this works is whoever is giving the most as a Patreon dono, whether it's a one-time dono or a monthly dono, gets to be on the throne. They get to be the king of the jungle. It's like an eBay bidding system. Anyone is welcome to it. It just so happens that Alexander has remained on that throne from the first day that we started it. And here we are now heading into his third year of supremacy I suppose. All right, let's talk about a few overall thoughts before we dive into specifically what we did well and what we didn't do well. Let me ask you this just very bluntly. Were you impressed by our performance? I was not impressed. I was I was let down by our performance. It was very uneven, uh, which I felt like was surprising to me given the opponent we were playing. I felt like we were significantly better than Virginia in a lot of different places. They were sort of the team that we mentioned, very disciplined. They weren't going to give you anything. Uh, They were going to make sure they played sound football, but they just weren't in our hemisphere talent-wise. We won the game because of that. If Virginia was more talented than they were, we lose this game. And that, to me, was why I felt like it was very uneven. Although we controlled the game for a large stretch, it never felt like we were totally in jeopardy. This game had too many close moments for me to consider this a good performance. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's an Orange Bowl. It's a New Year's Six. Bowl games are weird in and of themselves for a lot of reasons. So 
I don't know that I was impressed by our performance, but I don't. I wasn't distressed by it. Uh, we won the game, which is obviously the point, but we didn't win it in the style that we're accustomed to this year. I think we. This is probably the first game against a. I guess you can call them an inferior opponent where we didn't really step on their throats in the way I wanted us to. So I'm hopeful that, you know, this is just a little bit of an aberration. But, you know, I guess you have to give credit to the team that they won. Where a lot of teams don't show up for a bowl game, we at least showed up and won. Now, tied into all of this, I mean, I think Steve Levy mentioned it in the pregame, right as the teams were coming on the field, how motivated are the Gators in this game? Did, did we seem motivated to you? I thought we were actually very motivated. I think Dan Mullen has done a remarkable job year in and year out motivating his players for bowl games. We're going to talk about some of the bowl game results later on in the show, and you're going to see some where teams were definitely not motivated. This would have been an easy one, as we said, not to be motivated. But in reality, almost every single player that was available played in this game. The only one who didn't, as we mentioned, was C.J. Henderson, who's going to the NFL, or anyone who may have been injured. That's really impressive in and of itself. And secondarily, I thought the team did give a full effort, which means, spoiler alert, my frustration is going to rely with the game plan that we came up with. This was not a player effort situation to me. This was actually a coaching hack job might be too strong of a word, but not a solid coaching performance. And maybe their motivation wasn't the same. And that's one thing that we've talked about before, Alan, Coaching motivations in bowl games are not always just to win them. Sometimes they're doing different things. They're trying different things. I'm not sure that was the case for us, unfortunately, but we always want to throw that out there. So I thought the players were adequately motivated. They were playing hard. They were playing full of energy. The seniors, especially the ones that were shining, I thought, this really meant something to them. Joe Hayden wrote a really cool article on the Players' Tribune before the Orange Bowl talking about what it means to be a Gator and how he feels about things. There was sufficient motivation from the players, and that to me is one of the healthiest signs of your program. If I take anything away from this bowl game, it's that Dan Mullen is in fact a culture master. And unlike Urban Meyer, it doesn't seem like Dan Mullen's going to burn himself out and have to take breaks every four or five years. It seems like he can master this culture and keep building maybe what Dabo Sweeney is doing. Not to that same degree. That culture seems to be almost too good to be true, but certainly a culture that is now feeding upon itself where you have younger players being mentored by older players. You have continuity and you have everyone competing for themselves, for their teammates, and for the university. And that's a really great thing to see. I agree. And that's what you want to see out of a team. You want to see them be competitive and in a competitive environment. And this is obviously not a national championship game, but it's a place where you want to see the guys show up, play well, of course, but play with effort. And that's something the coaching staff has preached from day one, you know, the relentless strain kind of mantra that they put forward. I agree that I thought we seemed motivated. This game hinged, you know, hinged on it was being close, I guess, hinged on a few big plays by Virginia. Some really fantastic plays by Perkins scrambling. He's got like three guys on him. One of the receivers high points a ball in the end zone. They made some plays that if they don't make, this game probably is a little bit more of a blowout. And they got it close where they got to kick an onside kick. But you're right. Never felt in danger. I was really more interested in the people who had those 13, 14, 16-point spreads that they had wagered some ducats on. Um, 
that was the more interesting thing. I, I never really felt at all like we were going to lose. Um, at the end, I guess, you you know, if they get the onside kick, maybe you start to feel a little dicey there. But overall, I think solid performance. This is still a top 25 team. It's not a gr- it's not an awful team. We outclassed them talent-wise. And, and really what I think you pointed out previously um, was that schematically – and strengths and weaknesses really probably lined up to give us even more of an advantage than the relative talent advantage. And I don't think that we took advantage of that. We could have really put the screws to them in this game, and we didn't. But give Virginia credit for battling. You know, those guys, as players and as coaching staff, know how to at least keep themselves in a the game. You know, I don't think we're at the level of Clemson where we can just really road grade somebody. We have to play well and play smartly. I don't know, medium, but it's a bowl game too. I, You know, if we had won by 30, I don't think I would have really cared. Losing this game would have been a little ding just because the optics of it would have been bad. Being that favored against a really overmatched opponent who shouldn't be in the game. But you know what? Whatever. <laughs> That's kind of what bowl season is. It's fun. I'm going to watch them. I'm glad we got to go to New Year's Six, but I'm not going to put all my weight on how we did in this very particular game. Yeah, definitely not. An important note on this podcast, we give bowl games very little emphasis and credit. However, you still want to look at some of the themes, Alan, that existed, I think, throughout the year, continued into this game. Certainly. Some of which are concerning. Some are what maybe are not as concerning, and we'll go through them. I guess the key takeaway is, not I guess, but definitely, is we did reach 11 wins, which is an improvement win-wise. That's two games above what the Vegas line was for us. That's solid by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, We didn't win anything, didn't hang any banners yet, and we're going to talk more about that at the end of this piece. But let's talk about the game here. Again, we're not going to go into as much detail as normal. It's a bowl game. This does not carry over into future seasons, per se. The roster will be different. We do want to highlight on some of the themes that we think could factor into 2020. So that's kind of our lenses. Which of this stuff will carry through to 2020? So, Alan, we had almost 550 yards of offense, 311 passing, Our best rushing game of the year against a real opponent. We were consistently able to rush the ball well. We went 6 of 13 on third down, which is not great. 2 and 2 on fourth down, which was great. And only gave up one sack, although we faced some consistent pressure at times in this game. And other times we had all day. So that was kind of a a big difference in what was going on. To me, my whole offensive segment is going to hinge on what I say next. UVA's game plan was exactly what we said it would be. They are going to mix it up on the back end tremendously. They were going to load up entirely to stop the pass. At times, they were rushing only two and three guys at Kyle Trask. This surprisingly seemed to surprise Dan Mullen. At halftime, he says, it's obvious they spent all their time attempting to load up against the pass. Well, of course they're going to do that, Dan. But here is what's curious. Here is what's curious. As we've called for in our ways to improve every single week, more empty sets. More empty sets, right? More five wide. More empty sets, which we were doing more and more and more. 19 times in the Florida State game. We went empty only seven times in this game. And what's more befuddling about this, Alan, is they didn't have any linebackers left. They're playing two NBA basketball players at linebacker, (laughs) which they're going to do really well in zone. Spread them out, make them cover you man-to-man, and destroy them. The game plan was utterly befuddling to me that we chose to attack a defense in the way we did, knowing they were going to do exactly what they did. That part, although we had all these yards and we racked up 38 points, 
is just a little frustrating to me. That's surprising. It seems like that would have been an easy thing to diagnose. So I come away frustrated about that and simultaneously encouraged that P. Ryan and the running game had a good game. But that's my offensive takeaway. Is that is a surprising decision game plan-wise. Agreed. I I wonder how much we you know, effort we put into really preparing for Virginia, you know, whether that was spent more on recruiting, those kind of points. I mean, didn't feel like they studied Virginia the way that Virginia studied us. And that could be untrue. It could be they studied them a lot and came away with some incorrect conclusions. So I don't want to disparage their effort if that was the case, but I almost wish it were the case because that would maybe speak higher for their play calling acumen. It is odd, though, right? 550 yards, 311 passing, best rushing game of the year. But it felt like we were scuffling a little bit. Now, I want to pause here and say, if this is scuffling, that's really great. We would have killed for these statistics last year. Killed for them. And this just feels like, ah, we played okay. This is a top 25 team in a somewhat high-profile situation. So I don't want to totally discount what we're able to accomplish, even not performing optimally. So with all that said, I agree with you. There was times that we didn't seem like we were prepared to take advantage of what they were going to give us. And I, I don't know, maybe they did some... I didn't scout Virginia intensively myself. You know, we looked at them, but... We didn't watch all of their game films. So maybe they did some stuff that was still a little surprising, even though you said that they're going to be you know, diverse on the back end. They're going to throw a lot of different coverages at you. I don't know. It, it wasn't like a bad game offensively, but it wasn't a stellar one. And that maybe grades us out at like a C plus, B minus for this game. I think there's two things to look at. One is production, which we still produced, which shows the offense has taken a, a ginormous step forward being led by Kyle Trask versus what we had under Franks. It's much more consistent. It's much less uneven. But as a coach and as a play caller, you want to be optimal. And when you're grading games on film, what you're looking for is, did I get the optimal result over the course of the game? Now, sometimes you're going you're gonna to have an optimal play based on what they've been doing, what they've been doing all season, what they're doing in the game, and they may switch it on you post-snap. That's where the game theory comes into play. But in this game, we were very suboptimal. I think that when the coaching staff looks at this, they'll know if they were doing it again, they would do it differently. And maybe that does come into play, Alan, with what you said. They weren't game planning for us as hard as we game plan for them. But even then, this should be a layup at this point in time. It's, it's, it's obvious when you look at the data what we are best at. And running empty is one of our best sets, period. It was encouraging against Florida State how often we did it. And then just kind of bizarre that on a team that really should have an impossible time defending us in empty, we didn't do it which was just surprising. And we were successful on that fourth down and eight. We went empty, easy route to Freddie Swain. So I'm not going to give him a pass on this. Mullen had gotten better and better and better as the year went on, unlike Grantham on the other side of the ball, who was maybe better and then questionably different. So I'm more likely to be lenient here, but I want to bring it up because this will come into play in 2020. To me, if I'm Dan Mullen, the 2020 offseason is the offseason of me mastering the empty set passing game, because that is what Kyle Trask excels at. You're going to want him to improve some of his other skill sets. 
but you want to build your team around your player's greatest strength. And we didn't do that in the Virginia game. I think had we done that, we probably scored more than 50 on them and the game's not as uneven. With all that being said, as you said, we did get a good amount of production. That's a sign of progress as a team, a sign of progress on all 11 position points and players. But again, our job on this podcast is to tell you, were we optimal? The answer in this game is no. We were very, very suboptimal with regards to game plan and tactical adjustments during the game. That surprised me. However, one thing that surprised me in the positive side was our ability to run the ball. Coming into the game, we said Virginia top 40 running defense. We did not expect to be able to run against them. They did not expect us to be able to run against them, yet we ran the ball really well. Is this encouraging for you? I think it is. Uh, this was what we were hoping for, maybe throughout the season, that the offensive line was going to take steps forward in this area. And they really didn't until this game. And so I don't know if this was a little bit of an aberration. Like if, if we played again next week, could we come close to replicating this kind of performance? I mean, it certainly helps that P. Ryan from the jump breaks off a long run. But uh, previously, if we had had a long run, we had also had a lot of kind of, I don't know, very mediocre efforts to where we're getting stuffed at the line. Now, we did get stuffed a decent amount, but we still had several other explosive running plays. So between P. Ryan, Emory Jones, you know, a little bit of Damian Pierce there, we ran the ball well. And not just, like, statistically, but a little bit with the eye test, too. So... I don't know that I would want to go, yeah, we fixed it based on just one game against Virginia, which was a little overmatched. And again, they were playing the pass way more than they were playing the run. So you have to moderate that. On the other side, I will say lots of teams have been doing that. We haven't been able to run the ball against anybody. Even if they were bad opponents who were not defending the run, we still couldn't do it. We did do it. So that is... I guess a notch in our belt that is a step in the right direction. Can we carry it over into next season? That well, that's going to be the question all off season. So it is a little bit of a bright spot, but is it kind of a faint? Is it like, oh, we did it that one week and we can never do it again next year? Well, that's certainly a reality. You think about Felipe Franks playing better than the year. Could he take steps forward? Uh, maybe not. Maybe he still is the same guy. We're we have a lot more elements at play signaling that we could improve. And one of those was my intriguing O-line formulation where we're playing Stone Forsyth at right tackle, garage at left tackle. You insert Ethan White in there. You know They can't run that same lineup next year because Buchanan will be gone, but they can get close to that. They can do something like that. And that got a decent amount of run. They played a you know a fair amount of staffs together, and they were fairly productive. I um, would be interested – if someone like broke down the production per like lineup, um, I didn't take the time to parse the stats that closely, but they looked better to my eye in those situations. I think they've consistently looked better as we've noted on this very podcast. Delance should never be in the game and garage is much better at left tackle than foresight is. But regardless they had great matchups in this game. We talked about coming into it, this is equal talent versus equal talent on the lines. And that's sad for us in the SEC that we're saying equal talent. Stone might be a slight step above. Uh, I think we're going to get a massive improvement at center next year. I think Buchanan has been a major weak spot all year long at the center spot. He kills half of our run blocking plays. 
it's going to be a huge step up, whether it's Heggy who moves there or someone else, and then you get some talented young guys coming in. The offensive line will be better next year. How much better, we don't know. Will this game signal anything? Probably not, but at least once we were able to run the ball effectively against a team that was exclusively loading up to pass against us. Like you said, that had not happened even against other overmatched opponents. I'm not going to make a lot out of that, but I do think it was important to note yet again in this football game, DeLance gets pulled out. They go to the Allen Williams offensive line formation, and it was much better. Why we don't just go with that, I will never know. But it's going to be a storyline into 2020 because that's something that has mattered this year are these timeshares that we are creating on the O-line and in the safety positions that I continue not to understand. So keep that in the offseason uh, playbook. All right. Where do we struggle in this game, Alan? Well, let me ask you first about Kyle Trask. We've you know, noted his statistics. We've talked about you know his overall play in this game. A lot of chatter that he seemed a little off in this game, despite having decent statistics. Um, did throw an interception, only threw one touchdown pass, which is doesn't really matter how you score, you know, o- overall across the season. But in this game, only one touchdown where he's been throwing multiple. Do you seem off to you? He was off, and he did struggle in this game, and he still finished with 300-plus yards, which is great. Again, there were Florida quarterbacks who weren't throwing for more than one or two 300-yard games a year or a season for the right. past he's four decade. Last five. So he's almost every game he's done that. But this was not one of his finer games. He got it going in the second half. He struggled mightily in the first half. The length and size of Virginia's linebackers ate him up. That was the primary thing for me. That really messed him up. Uh, having played a lot of quarterback myself, especially in the flag world, when you get two really tall guys like that in your throwing window, they're really tall, like six, seven. Dudes. As much as we want to throw the slant route and the in route, that will really mess you up. What gets me again is if you had just gone five wide, I think he would have shredded them from the get go. So it's part of it was I didn't think the play calling and coaching was great, especially given that hey, he's struggling with the look he's giving them. Let's try something different. Didn't really do it. But what makes Kyle Trask to me so special, he's always unfazed and unrattled. And as the game moved on, he got better and better and better. He led us on key drives, hit key passes in big moments, despite really not having his best stuff, finishes the game with 300 plus yards, a solid quarterback rating, and really all in all, an average performance for Kyle Trask. But if you're critiquing this and saying he seemed off, this is good news. What that means is you've begun to see a really high level of quarterback play throughout the year that you have not seen in a long time at Florida, which is why you're recognizing what it looks like when it's not really good. And hopefully to the naysayers for Kyle Trask, that will make you appreciate just how good he's been. Is that that's a pretty decent game for a college quarterback. But for Kyle Trask, he looked off because he's so rarely like that. Am I concerned heading into next year? No, I think things are only going to get better for Kyle. Kyle finished 11th overall in QBR for 2019. I'm not going to compare him to Joe Burrow because Joe Burrow, what he did this year was absolutely incredible. If he beats Clemson, it will be maybe one of the best college football seasons ever by a quarterback. But Joe Burrow did not finish 11th last year in QBR. Joe Burrow was just as off the radar as Kyle Trask was heading into 2020. Again, I'm not going to say those things, but I don't want to minimize for a second the incredible year Trask had. He finishes third in the SEC under most quarterback metrics behind only Tua and Burrow. 
That is phenomenal. If you would have told anyone this in the beginning of the year, nobody, including myself, would have believed it. This guy never played. That's an incredible season for him. Unfortunately, he did finish a little off, and that will continue with questions going into the offseason as to whether or not it's him or it's Emery. Emery immediately says after the game, all I know is this, I'm ready. I'm ready to play. And then follows that up with nice things about how him and Trask are working together to get better. Uh, Dan Mullen, of course, saying it'll be an open competition. Again, open competition, Dan says, every player and spot is open to compete. As well as it should be. As it should be. And we've talked about this before. I think Trask goes in as the absolute penciled-in number one starter in his spring camp. Of course, if Emery gets better and beats him out, he should. He should win. But I think it's clear that it's Kyle Trask's team going into 2020. Emery will be ready to play. Emery will be trying to get better to beat him. But we do have a standard bearer as we head in there. And he capped off a really great season, an 11-win season. Almost all those wins are attributable to his play and how well he did. Uh, Leading the team, and Dan spoke a lot after the game about who he was as a leader, how he pays attention to the game, and how he's setting really the example for the backups. It's very encouraging to see a guy like Kyle Trask doing what he's doing when you're a backup because it means that, hey, if I keep learning good things can happen. Yeah, going circling back around to him being off in this game, it, it's tempting for us to treat him like a robot because he has been so efficient and so consistent, but he's still a human. You know, whether he's not feeling physically or you know up to snuff or things happen in the game where he's not expecting still was very comfortable with him the entire game. Uh, again, if you want to compare him to Felipe, or if you just were going to go, Kyle's not playing this game. He got the flu, and Emery is playing. I'd been, I'd be kind of nervous the entire game of what was going to happen. Kyle eliminates that. I mean, doesn't mean that we're going to win every game, obviously, but there's such a confidence in his play that even if he doesn't have the right stuff, he's still going to put you in a position to win. That that's the mark of a really great quarterback, I think. And I, like you said, I love his demeanor. I love his commitment to improvement. And, you know, even that interception, if we're going to be nitpicky, that is a spot on the field you almost never see an interception. Over your player's head against the sideline, that guy made an incredible play on the ball. It wasn't a great throw by Kyle. It wasn't a great read. But normally that's not the place that's going to punish you. Uh, And so, you know, if you want to look at it through that lens or just – I think his timing on some throws wasn't as sharp as he normally is, but that's okay. It doesn't have to be Tom Brady for us to win. I think he's going to be fantastic next year. All of the Emory stuff to me is crazy, and I hate that it's even a consideration because it feels like it's going to infect our coaching staff. Or <laughs> I don't know. I hope that they're above the fray with that because that feels nuts. Or if those fans are right about Dan Mullen – that also feels crazy to me. Anyway, I agree with everything you said about him next year. We're going to talk a lot about that as we go along, but I'm very, very encouraged by him and hopeful for his play next year. Let's talk about Emory a little bit. Four carries, 32 yards, looked really great on a, on a few of those runs. There's a moment in the game where I think he has like a nine-yard run or something. I wish I should have looked up this up before. I'm just thinking about where I was really surprised they didn't leave him in to throw the ball. Were you surprised he didn't get more reps throwing the ball in this game? I am actually pretty surprised. I think the biggest driver of that was they were so content to let us run. 
their game plan really was just let them run. Even when Emery was in, they were trying to keep everything in front of them, make them run, make them run, make them run, get in the red zone, let's try to stop them, which is which is really, Allen a very classic, if you're the underdog strategy. And, and having been at BYU, this strategy was used a lot by Bronco Mendenhall against the bigger teams he would play. He's very used to playing against a favorite opponent, and I think you saw that with how well they played against us. I don't, I'm not surprised. I think Emery's lack of playing time is probably an indicator of how well Virginia did. I'm sure they wanted to get him more snaps in this game than they did in the bowl game. But the reality was the game was always contested. And that does show you that Dan Mullen wanted to win this bowl game. He obviously values bowl game wins. He values the optics of them. He encourages it in the culture. And I think you saw that. And that was really, uh, I think, again, significant in the playing time Emery got. But with what he had, he did fine. Right now, the biggest thing with Emery, if you are an Emery fan and you think, hey, Emery should be the guy, Emery's the guy, the difficulty is that we can't see what Emery can really do as a passer or as an actual quarterback. He's really just a limited runner. It doesn't mean he is limited. It means, again, we are not at practice. We don't know what's happening. And you would need your starter to play poorly to begin to want your backup to see what he can do, which is the Frank situation. Why are we saying can't wait to see someone else play because Franks had proven he was limited. In this case, Trask has not proven that. And some people are saying, well, Trask has reached a ceiling. Couldn't disagree more. That's Again, crazy statement. I give you Joe Burrow and others and the fact he's only really played 13 games. But Emery hopefully will continue to develop and improve. And if something happens to Kyle Trask, Emery comes in and we're going to find out how good Emery is. Uh, I don't want anyone to think on this podcast we're doubting Emery. You do what you can with the data. But again, there should be no reason for you to look to take out Kyle Trask right now, especially because if he can spend his 2020 improving his footwork, improving throwing off his platform more often, he kind of developed a tendency towards the end of the season, Allen, to throw a lot off his back foot. I think a lot of that has to do with that knee injury he sustained. They're never going to talk about that, but that's going to heal. He's going to wind up being a healthy version of himself in spring ball. Uh, But all in all, we're in a great quarterback situation. We've got a veteran one. And now, really, a veteran two system-wise, which is everything you dream of in a big season. Uh, and and again, if you're a fan of Emory and you want to see him play, that's good. But just temper that with the fact that whatever you've seen this season is not a realistic sample as to what he would do against the defense. Whereas with Kyle Trask, we've seen consistency and consistency and more consistency. And Emory will get some play considering our fairly soft schedule. You know, you're not trying to get Kyle Trask more reps late into a game next year, like we might have this year. We just he just needed a play, even if the game was a little bit of blowout. Emory's going to see a lot of action. We'll get to see him. You know, even against inferior opponents, we're going to get to see him play next year. It'll be interesting to follow that storyline for sure. All right, let's, you ready to talk about defense? Let's talk about it. This is probably the more interesting storyline. So we beat up the offense a little bit, mainly because again, our job is to tell you what's optimal. The defense, this part, I'm legitimately frustrated about. So we allowed 375 yards, 337 of those were passing. This was without a doubt Bryce Perkins' best game as a collegiate football player. They had 19 first downs through the air, zero on the ground. They were only 5 of 13 on third down. They gave up three sacks and threw one INT, which is a great pick by Elam. Questionable would be a nice way to say this. Our (laughs) game plan was horrible. Allen, horrible. We said coming into the game that UVA was going to attempt to pass on us because that's what they do. They can't run the ball. They're going to pass on us. We are vastly superior to them athletically. They spread the ball out well. They do well. 
Maybe we weren't vastly superior because their receiver, number eight, destroyed us all game long. He that did. was the guy that was catching the ball like 10 times in this game against us. And we didn't seem to even want to match up with him. It was kind of like, well, whoever he's guarding is fine. It's a linebacker. Great. Who cares? It's a safety. Great. Who cares? That was foolish. But here's what we actually did. We played dime zero times against Virginia. Zero. Zero. Despite the fact that they can't run the football. We played five defensive backs. So dime is six, right? We played five defensive backs for the fewest times, Alan, all season long against any power five opponent countering that we played four linebackers significantly more than any other game all year long we did precisely opposite what any rational defensive coordinator would expect to do against virginia it was mind-boggling after the game bronco mendenhall said florida's game plan was to be very conservative which is an understatement a colossal understatement this is a point of unbelievable frustration for me, Alan, to the point to where I'm ready to say, I'm, I'm done with Grantham. This is now a theme where if he plays against an accomplished quarterback, we get abused time and time again. But most importantly, this is elementary football 101. This is not even explainable. If Grantham were on this show right now, there's not a single thing you could tell me that would make a single ounce of football sense as to why you would ever do this. It makes no sense. I've got serious problems with that. I don't think Grantham is going anywhere. I'm going to air it right now. This was sickening to me to look at these stats in the postgame breakdown and to see what we did in this matchup. The reason we did not blow Virginia out, even though it could have been 36-21, right? But the reason we didn't really handle them was largely because of what I think was just a horrific defensive game plan. And part of the reason we played linebackers statistically so much because we, we had Amari Bernie out there a lot. And we're using him as the nickel. Now, technically, he's a linebacker, so that's going to skew some of those statistics. But even if you wanted to leave him in there, you know, as your solo linebacker, that would be an interesting move. Um, You know, our our desire to keep David Reese on the field, of course, helps us in a lot of ways. But it's going to prevent you from playing true, like, dime, I think, with Bernie out there. So... But it's not even that. You're right. We didn't look good even playing very conservatively. And we never really backed out of it. Um, They kept doing it to us all game long. So that was kind of the weird thing is not that we were like, oh, can we beat them doing this conservative thing? Well, no. Okay. We never really changed out. And, And Bernie wasn't as effective in this game as I thought it could be. He's really effective if you're going to go against a conservative game plan on the other side where he's going to guard tight ends and running backs. He's going to eat them up. He struggled a little bit in some of the pass coverage or just in the positions that we put him in on the field. I don't know that it was necessarily his fault. I didn't look at him a lot and go, he did something dumb on that play. Yeah, you're right. It's just a very strange game plan. Um, yeah, it's beyond strange because, again, we I didn't say we played two linebackers. We went to four. To give you the other example, right? Let's say that you keep Bernie in and you keep Reese in. Fine. Let's say you keep Diabate in even because he's going to be like a, a you know your 3-4 edge rusher. That's fine. That's three. We played four significantly more than any other time all year long. But again, it doesn't make any sense. Now, this does highlight something we've long talked about, Alan. We are a very poor 3-4 team traditionally, which is odd because we are a 3-4 defense. We continue not to have the right pieces there. 
We've said it all year long on this podcast. We did not improve this year at that. Our base 3-4 is really a defense we should never play. And it doesn't make any sense to me to play it against a guy like Bryce Perkins at all. And yet we played it almost the whole time. Bernie wasn't the issue. Matchups against safeties was the issue. Not really locking down their best receiver throughout the game was an issue. But here's something fun for you. We played man for only eight snaps in this game. Yeah, very and we held Virginia to a quarterback rating of 45. We played a cover one man five times, and they completed one pass for five yards. This stuff is just beyond explanation. Throughout the season, we played man about 25 to 30% of the time. We played zone 70% of the time. I will never be able to understand that. Couldn't defend it. It just doesn't make sense, Alan. Why are you recruiting man press corners if you're going to play so much zone? It really doesn't make sense. So what I take away from this game is I am losing or have lost really all faith in Grantham's game plan ability. I don't think personnel changes are going to change this. It seems to me that his core identity as a defensive coordinator is just unpredictability in the wrong way. Hmm. We didn't blitz a lot in this game. We didn't even use a lot of zone pressure, things he'd be known for. He just sort of does things against good quarterbacks that are hard to understand. Did it against Georgia, did it against LSU, does it against Virginia. I have a hard time finding out why we would do what we do half the time. But this one was the most frustrating, I think, of all. When you have a talent advantage, when you're playing in a bowl game where you're the more athletic team, when you know this team can't run the football, there's a lot of things you can do to address that. And I thought we didn't really choose to do you know, any of them. So frustration on my end with regards to that. I don't know if I have anything more to add. It was, you know, wasn't a great effort. I think, like you said, that largely schematically. I mean, there were some bright spots from guys individually, but overall, the defense I struggled. And it's funny, you know, this year when we were limited, even even against the better teams, where you know you like we talked about Georgia, where it's like, well, if the offense scored more, you would think just by looking at the stats. But as you dig deeper, the defense couldn't get off the field, and that was the same. In, is true in this game. This this would have been a very similar game in terms of limited number of drives if we didn't have some very quick play scores and turnovers. So, you know, I don't know. I We won the game. Maybe they thought we can win the game by being conservative and that we lose the game by being overly aggressive. But situationally, that doesn't seem to be the case. So hard to find like a lot of good to say about this defense, even though they did enough to help us win the game. Some bright spots and there were plenty. And again, you didn't hear a lot of individual effort concern on defense. I think these guys are playing as hard as they could. That's a good sign on offense. P Ryan, definitely yeah. MVP of the game. Well-deserving. Great to see a guy who's been around the program this long, always sort of unheralded kind of not the five star, not the guy everyone wanted brothers playing in the NFL. Great finish to his career. Yeah, I loved it from him. See him pick up all that yardage, get three, almost four touchdowns, and make some really nice plays in every phase of the game. You saw why the coaching staff loves him so much. You know, hand him the ball, big play, split him out wide, let him catch the ball, get into the end zone, break tackles. And then, you know, picking up blitzes and pass protection too, that they can trust him in every area of the field. It's hard to find a guy you can do that with consistently. And that's been a really great thing for this program. And not that he's the most raw, talented guy, but he's definitely attempting to maximize his ability. And it'll be interesting to see if he gets a shot in the NFL. I mean, 
the announcers were like, oh, he's going to be playing on Sunday. It's like, well, maybe. I, I would like to see him. I, he will get a shot. I'm hopeful that he will be able to continue to develop and become a productive member of an NFL team. I think he can do that. Yeah, I would be shocked if he does that, Alan, just because he lacks the the burst and he's undersized. So it's like a double whammy. If you're, if you're going to be lacking the burst, you've got to be really strong runner. He's not. If you have the burst, you've got to have the burst. I, I don't know. He's a complete running back, as you said. He can do everything for you, and he's really sound. In the NFL, you got to make it on special teams, which maybe he will because he has that mental acumen and the ability. I think it's a long road for him to become like a contributing factor in the running game. Well, it just depends on what you value out of your backup running back spot or your third running back spot. Do you want to keep a guy in there that can do everything, or are you trying to hit home runs with those guys? Probably, If he can catch on with the right organization, I could see him playing five, six years just because you can depend on him to do everything you want him to do. Yeah, and we and we will see. And a testament there to being a true professional, maybe the total opposite of like a Tony uh, with regards <laughs> to the details, right? Piran mastered all of the details of his profession. And that's what matters the most to me, whether Piran makes it in the NFL or not. He can lay his head on his pillow knowing, I have done all I can do to make myself the best running back that I can be, given my genetic potential, my makeup, my build. And that's all any of us want to do in life is maximize our own abilities and let the chips fall where they may. And I think he's going to go down, you know, in our program history as a really, you know, he's going to be very fondly remembered for what he gave to the program and that he was productive over four years, that he led us in rushing for three of those. And... Yeah, I mean, when you look back on this decade, there's not a lot of guys you would pick at that running back running back spot over him, and not that he was the most talented one, but that he got the most out of what he was able to do here. All right, let's talk about Kyrie Elam. This guy already is the most you know feared defensive back on our team. Teams do not like to throw at him. He's physical. He's long. He's quick to the ball. Good ball skills. I mean, I think he's going to be a star next year. I don't see any reason why not to hype him up. I mean, it just depends on who else is in the conference, but he's an all-SEC type player. Yeah, he's an all-American. He's a first-team all-American corner, and I think he will be next year. He has still, out of all the freshman cornerbacks in the country, the lowest throw-at rate. He has the, the best incompletion percentage. He is an absolute monster on defense. When you saw him locked up against, again, their receiver who was destroying us, he runs the go route for him. First of all, jams him perfectly moves the hips, turns up field, runs the go route for him, stays on top of the route, and then picks it off. That is a play that NFL scouts will be thirsting over. Those are the corners you dream of. Big, physical kid, quick hips. This guy is incredible, Alan. Incredible. You could not set the expectations high enough for him next year. He is going to be an all-world corner. Love it. And the guy... I need to give some credit to TJ Slayton. I called him earlier this season the most disappointing guy in the program. And I don't know if I was wrong to say that, but he's really come on in the last half of this year. And not that he's become like incredible, but he's definitely showed more and more flashes each game. I think those coaches are trusting him more and more each game. He's got an opportunity again next year to be a guy if he starts to fulfill some of that potential that moves us up a level on defense. If he can become the guy he was – graded out as potential, you know, as a recruit, then all of a sudden we become much more dangerous along defensive line. Our ceiling goes up. And so I don't know if he'll get there, but I'm really intrigued by his potential still and hopeful that he can do that next year. 
I'm really excited about Slayton. We talked about him midway through the year, and then at the end of the year, it seemed like on film he was really starting to make a difference. Really encouraged to see him cement that in this game. This is a huge win to me for the coaching staff, uh, for our new D-line coach, who obviously is getting rave reviews in the recruiting trail. You're getting production out of a talented guy who is not producing. That's what good coaches should do, and they're doing it, and that will vastly help this team next season. We need a strong defensive tackle like this to emerge. We're all rooting for him, obviously. And I'm sure, Alan, you'd love to change your tag of him to you know a guy who turned it around. But so far, so good. I think that's one of the best bright spots we're looking at. Elam's expected. Slayton is not. And Slayton is important to this team. And again, a really true hallmark of player development within a program. And then lastly, let's talk about Van Jefferson. A lot of yards in this game. A lot of touches. I mean, I think he probably had the most targets or the second most targets of any receiver in almost every game. Such trust in him by both the coaching staff and the quarterback. Um, the play he made where we're backed up in our own end zone, you know, gets the ball and immediately gets upfield and loses his guy. Uh, there's a lot of ways to like fumble that play or not take it full advantage of it. And He's just been excellent all year. He was excellent last year. What a win getting him on campus and a part of our program really, I think, allowed this wide receiver group to flourish in ways that wouldn't have without him. And if you're excited about the transfer market, which we're going to talk about in our news and notes, this is a home run transfer guy. Van Jefferson changed our team. Phenomenal Gator. Uh, just consummate professional at that position yeah, and love to see him finish his Gator career the way he did. Just a great send off. Great, great job by him. And if you're Mullen and you have guys like Van Jefferson and Pirine in there, when you become a coach, that does wonders for you. I think that probably sped up the development of our program by a lot. If you don't have any guys who are the best guys at their position and also like the hardest workers and the, and the, you know, one of the better tacticians on the team, then that's going to set you back. So if you're behind those, if you're playing behind P Ryan and behind Van Jefferson, you can look at those guys. It's like, they're not just like talented. They work hard. They're students of what they're supposed to do. I mean, Van Jefferson's covering punts. He's our best receiver. P Ryan. Yeah. Stick him back there. He'll blow up that guy blitzing. He's going to be in the right spot at the right time. When you have those guys who are leaders at your position and work as hard as they do and are as, you know, skillful, as they are in every phase of the game. That's huge. Just wanted to highlight those seniors one more time. And I think that's been a big win for Dan Mullen. He probably couldn't say enough about guys like that when you make a transition like he did. And I'm sure they're feeling really flowery towards Dan Mullen. You imagine you didn't commit to Dan Mullen. In comes this other coach. You don't know what's happening, who they're going to hire. And you go from a guy like McIlwain, who really was just a developmental disaster to a guy in Mullen who cares about you, who develops you, you buy into it, you set the model for the next generation. And and you can talk to any of the Gators today. Talk to the ones who were here during the transition from Zook to Urban and from how important Urban has continued to make them feel for creating the foundation that led to all the success. You can't, you can't put into words what that means to those kind of guys. And although these guys didn't hang any banners, Alan, if Dan Mullen gets the program where he wants to get it to, he will remember these guys, the Van Jeffersons and the P. Ryans, as the guys that paved the way, the Grenards, the Zunigas, that showed this is what it means to be a Gator. And and a lot of times they're remembered even more fondly than the ones who went because without those bridge guys, you don't get to where you need to get to. On special teams, we had another great performance from, 
from McPherson NFL kicker, kick, yeah. just really solid, really comfortable. And then we got to say goodbye to a, a Gator legend in the punting uniform, Tommy Townsend, the Townsend brothers and their reign Man. on the program here. Tip of the cap. And he was didn't have his finest effort there to end. He had a few punts I think he wants back. But yeah, definitely maybe his worst punt of the season in this game. He did, yeah. But, man, what a great career for him. A lot of good moments, a lot of great punts. Still, for me, goes down as I think the best punter we've had at pinning people deep. He really mastered waiting, taking advantage of the college game and the way teams play special teams. Uh, but we'll be sad to see him go. He's been so consistent at that position. All right, let's talk a little coaching corner. Let's talk two fourth down calls here. The first one, fourth and one. In our own territory here, like not right at the fifty either, like because there's a little distance there. We run the option. How'd you feel about that call? Kyle Trask is really good at running the option. The pitch does not come out as hard as you want it to, but I see why you want to do that. I mean, he really times it well. He's not that fast. He's not that fast accelerating either, right? He's not fast straight line. Slow speed. motion. It's not the speed option. It's the slow motion. But option. he he times it really well, which is True. why it works. So I like that play call with him there because he will get that pitch out at the right time. He did. Therefore, we got the first down. What I like most about a lot of the fourth downs we went for is the feel for Dan Mullen calling it when he does. Is it tends to lead to a touchdown. It almost always leads to points. It's very rare that we were going for fourth down and then later getting stopped. It happens sometimes. But this is another example of that. Fourth down in your own territory. The game is a one-score game at this point in time. It seems reckless. Brian Greasy thought it was reckless, right? Uh, disagree, of course, with, sure. with the situation. But, you know, either way, I liked it. I liked both of them. I love the fourth and eight. I thought the fourth and eight was a great call, a great situation to go with. I love the play call going five wide. Um, but either way, I liked both of these calls, even if the fourth and one didn't work. I felt like the way the game was going at that point in time, that was a fine call. We had a good chance of picking that up. They had a play call they liked that they had seen on film. Uh, I'm fine with all of that. Right, especially into the way they were playing us on defense. It, it, we had to screw it up not to pick it up. I liked it. I liked going forward on fourth and eight. Even on third down, we were backed up. I think we had a, a penalty on that drive that put us in like second and 22. You know, We kept picking up yardage. And got us into where, you know, fourth and eight on that spot of the field. It's not really a great option. You don't want to punt. Could have kicked a field goal. But I liked going for it there. If you have Kyle Trask and you have those receivers and you know, he makes a really nice throw, Freddie Swain, of course, there to pick it up. So good calls by that. Didn't feel like overly aggressive um, at those points in the game. You can get your – you want to be aggressive. You can get yourself into trouble being overly aggressive I thought Dan did a nice job of navigating that. Let's talk about some news and notes, Alan. As the player personnel guy, take us through what has been going okay, on. Okay, well, the, past the first days. one, and this is, I don't know, news because it's been long assumed, but Trevon Grimes announces that he's coming back. I think that's really, really big for this team. You can't replace his size and speed. And the fact that he's a guy who's been in the program for a couple of years now. Our, we're losing a lot of wide receivers. It was. It would have been really tough to lose him as well. What do you think about that? Oh, this is huge. This gives us the lineup potential we talked about, which is Copeland, Grimes, Tony, and Pitts, potentially, if yeah, they we'll, all we'll stay. See. Yeah. And again, I think if I'm Dan Mullen, that's the lineup I'm pitching to those guys. But it definitely locks in Copeland and Grimes, which is huge. Both of those guys can take the top off any defense. They're super dangerous. Um, I love it. This is a massive, massive win. We talked about it. We chronicled it. It was expected, so to speak. But you never know. Players can do crazy things. 
this is the right move for Grimes and the right move for the program. Big win for us. Indeed. A couple of transfers. We'll deal with the one who is already in the fold. Announced today, Lorenzo Lingard. Transfer from Miami. Former five-star running back. Hasn't played a lot in college. So had an injury, ACL tear. tear um, interrupted his freshman season. Didn't really play this past season. Only appeared in two games. Presumably preserving his red shirt now in the program for Florida. What are your thoughts about this? I love it because I'm stargazing. I'm slightly concerned because we don't know what he's like after his ACL tear. Right. His freshman year before he got hurt two months into the season, he had eight plus yards per carry. He was a phenom in the limited time he was getting incredibly productive, very solid. Then this year he's supposedly healthy doesn't really do anything. Game one, they only put him on special teams, doesn't play. He kind of washes out of the program from there on. So you can't judge exactly what happened, but he clearly fell out of favor with Manny Diaz and the coaching staff. If he's who he was before the ACL tear, then we just got ourselves a heck of a talented guy. He may not be, and I give you the case of one Malik Davis. He is not the same player post the ACL tear, not even close. Regardless, I like this. This guy had a ton of talent. He's got a great frame. You bring him into camp. If he doesn't work out, fine. It's worth the risk to me. If you're thinking, oh man, this guy's the answer, pump the brakes. That ACL tears for real. We just don't know. But I like adding this guy as competition in the running back spot. Let's see if he can do what he needs to do. So right now I have to just say every transfer we've taken has been either really successful or almost a home run to get this many years out of Trevon Grimes, get Van Jefferson. Now part of that was we were in a little bit of window. We were able to get them eligible immediately, which I don't know if we could do that anymore. Adam Schuler, really solid player for us. You know, every guy, and of course, Grenard, um, every guy we've taken has been excellent. Uh, you can fill up your you know, initial counter spots on your roster with these guys who are transferring who don't really make a difference for you, and that's a bad idea. Um, I would much rather take a high school recruit that I'm taking a chance on that I've evaluated and scouted, and I have four years potentially, maybe five with that guy. But the right transfer at the right time can be huge. So the fact that this staff is taking Lingard, right? We'll see. Now, there's a couple guys out there. Brenton Cox, haven't seen him play yet. Lingard, haven't seen him play yet. So... The jury's still out. And anytime anybody leaves a program, I want to know why. Is it they, are they a bust? Are they a total head case that the coaching staff just can't deal with? Maybe you can. Maybe that coaching staff is deficient in player development or player relations and you feel like you can do it. There's always a reason a guy leaves, right? Outside just the catastrophic, like a program implodes, the coach gets arrested or something, right? There's there's cases that where you would want to leave that anybody would want to leave. But... I'm not pessimistic about any transfer, but I'm always slightly skeptical. I want to see them do it. And Dan Mullen has proven so far that he can get the most out of these guys. So as of right now, I have to say it's really, really positive. I think you want to do this, like we said, and what you said is also true. You can find individual examples on either side. Hey, Joe Burrow left Ohio State. He won the Heisman. He could win a national championship, changing LSU's fortunes, becoming a legend there forever. 
But you can find the other side too. A bunch of transfers who go places and go nowhere. Tate Martell at Miami being Good one point. of them. There are countless others we could go through. Regardless, given Dan Mullen's track record, it seems like he knows who he's identifying character-wise. And for us, running back is a spot of need to have a guy here in camp who's healthy, who was the number two overall running back in the country pre-ACL tear is a worthwhile risk. This kind of goes back to our NBA example. If the last guy on the bench in the NBA, you want that guy to be a boom or bust guy. I think this is a boom or bust guy. He's either going to work and work really well, or he's going to be a guy that we just talked about and didn't make it. But he has that sky high potential. If he's healthy and he's right, this guy could be something. I like it. It's important for us. It does add to my stargazing total. But again, I think this fits. This is not just taking a five-star to take a five-star. Another guy, Justin Shorter, who is transferred or put himself into the transfer portal, coming from Penn State, five-star guy. I know nothing about him other than that he was a former five-star recruit. Uh, he was never really interested in us, so he never came on the Gators' radar. Leaving Penn State after just one year, presumably not eligible next year, although who knows in our current era. Uh, this would be another big talent upgrade at a spot that we need an infusion of talent in the wide receiver room, considering who we're losing. And he has not said he's transferring to the Gators, but seems like there's a lot of smoke in that direction. Yeah, widely expected, I think, at this point that he will come to Florida unless something changes. Regardless, top 10 receiver. Uh, in the country, top 10 overall player coming out, highly talented guy, NFL body, has not played at Penn State for whatever reason. And that illustrates your point. Getting a five-star through the transfer portal that hasn't played is not as good as getting a five-star that you have built a relationship with, watched them play games in high school over time, and taken them straight out of high school. It's just It's not as good. It doesn't mean you don't want to do it, but you can't weigh these things equally. You have to sort of look at them and give them a weighted average that takes them down a little bit, especially if they have no production at the school they're at. Again, it doesn't mean that they can't transfer and become heroes, but if you're going to weight this stuff out, you got to say, okay, Justin Shorter coming out of high school, going to UF, five-star full excitement. Him now not cracking the lineup at Penn State at all, dropping down, transferring, you just ding him down a little bit. He's got something to prove now. There's a chip on his shoulder. Either way, this guy has everything you would want measurable-wise. This is an excellent pickup for us yet again. Uh, I love it, even if it doesn't work out. I love it. Yeah, this time, this type of talent acquisition I think is really big, especially at positions of You want to take high-end talent at positions of need, checks all those boxes. Now, it's interesting, like you said, a guy who doesn't produce, you're – it adds more question marks. There's always question marks with even every high school recruit. I think we remember Brian Cowart or Byron Cowart. Who knows? He never played at Auburn, right? He's the number one player in the country down to us in Auburn. I think he eventually found his way to an NFL team because he's just so big and so talented, but huge bust, right? So just because you're five-star not guaranteed – And when you go to a school and you have a bad year, it just adds question marks. Now, you get a guy like Van Jefferson, very productive, left because Ole Miss imploded. right? You've seen that guy do it on the college football field. You can say, all right, I can can see him. I can imagine him doing exactly that for us. Now, when you change locations or circumstances, it's not necessarily one-to-one. But you have good info. You say, I've seen him do it. He's not just did it in high school. He's done it in college. That ups him. right? And those guys don't come along very often. 
So often when a guy's transferring, there's some kind of issue there. Now, quarterback, like you said, quarterback's a little different because you're only going to have one guy in the field to have these very short windows for their career, like in terms of getting playing time in college. And the fact that Burrow could be immediately eligible, I think, you know, elicits a real, like, he has to look at that transfer opportunity very closely. The rest of the guys in the program, I feel like it's way less. Like, you know, if you're Justin Shorter, you're going to have to sit out a year, presumably. So why are you leaving your current situation? It's The program is not imploding. I, I want to know those, the answers to those questions. Okay. Um, my boy, Joe Moorhead. Yes. Let's talk about him. Let's switch gears. So good news coming out of Florida. Both you and I, Alan, agree. Stoked about the news we just gave. Stoked about picking up better talent. And then this guy, not so stoked, wakes up today to find out that he is fired. My guy, Joe Moorhead, two years and done at Mississippi State. They ultimately said, just not a fit. All I want to say about this is, I still think it was a good hire by Mississippi State. What does that mean? Most of the time, you are going to whiff on your hire. If you're me, if you're James, the athletic director, Alan, I'm shooting for the moon. Right. And it's kind of interesting that since we first started saying this five years ago, Athletic departments have become a lot more like this. You're seeing much faster turnover of coaches. Once upon a time when I was in grad school at UF and Jamie McCluskey, at the time the director of compliance for UF, walked into our class and told us that Ronzik was going to be fired in an hour and no one knew it, that was a huge moment. Why? Because the season wasn't even over yet. He didn't fulfill his contract. There were all these debates about whether you'd fire a guy before his contract was even over, which is silly. That's silly. This is a good move by Mississippi State. I still think it was a good hire. He had talent. He killed it at Penn State. Penn State has not been the same since he left. He's a very gifted passing game coordinator. Not a good fit for the SEC. Not a really good head coach. And ultimately, there were issues reported within the program. A lot of dissension among the team. A lot of infighting. Doesn't seem like he's cut out for that kind of job. But I don't mind it. They swung for the fence and they missed. Now they're in a weird spot, though, because of when they fired him as to who's available and who they're going to get. Yeah, it is a weird spot. I, mean, I think these December or excuse me, January firings are going to still happen, even though the bulk of their class has to sign. Hopefully they'll do the right thing and let every single one of those guys who signed out of their national letter of intent, um, because that would be a really cowardly thing to do to sign all these guys and then fire the coach a couple of weeks after Morehead, You know, I, I did like the signing. I did like the hiring. Um, there are question marks for me immediately with the way he handled Nick Fitzgerald that showed a rigidity and a lack of uh, either unwillingness or inability to shift and change. Now, you, other side of that, you see Dan Mullen, who did do that this year with Kyle Trask. Now, if he was running Kyle Trask on QB draws like 18 times a game, I'd be like, what is wrong with you? Right. So, Joe Moorhead. Not as successful as Mississippi State wanted him to be. And part of that is because of how successful Dan Mullen was. That he raised the bar there. That these Joe Moorhead season would have been, he would have not ever gotten fired for two years pre Dan Mullen. But Dan Mullen has changed the climate there. And you're right, there's a certain thing about fit. This is Jim McElwain. Obviously, Jim McElwain had a certain level of success that would normally not get you fired. But he was such a bad fit culturally and internally that we just couldn't stomach him anymore. 
this seems to be some of the case. I, I don't know the personality dynamics. There's just a lot of noise in the system there. And Joe Moorhead is out. And it's weird. You're right. I mean, gone in less than two years was kind of unthinkable before. You'd almost always get three. Now, three coaches very recently, Chad Morris, Willie Taggart, and Joe Moorhead. Uh, Joe Moorhead obviously way more successful than either of those other two guys. Just shows you how much fit and culture also has to play into these type of situations. Is Dan Mullen a top five coach? You just mentioned him. You just said that look what he built at Mississippi State. It got Joe Moorhead fired with a winning record there. Look at Mississippi State's history, aside from when they were cheating back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Not often do they have that. Dan Mullen now, you know, rumored to be the Cowboys' potential coach, maybe, right? Kind of sky's the limit. Look at what he's done. The best coaching hire of all the high-profile guys, Scott Prost, Chip Kelly, etc. Dan Mullen, kind of the king of the coaching universe right now uh, for the guys who are not yet elite. Is he a top-five coach, though? That's really interesting. And then I saw this this article written proclaiming him to be one or making the case for him to be one. Kyle Mooney linked that to us on Twitter. I don't know. I have a hard time with that because I start thinking of guys. Immediately, you got to put Sabo, Sabo, (laughs) Saban and Dabo Swinney. Maybe just call them, merge them together. We'll call them Sabo. Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to include Urban Meyer in this. Um, He's not currently a coach, not employed anywhere, so... If he's off the list, maybe you move him up. There's guys like Lincoln Riley, um, Jimbo Fisher. But if I can't put him in the top five, I think I'm certainly putting him in that next category, the five to ten. Um, and you could case that he might be, if you take out Urban Meyer, maybe you want to say he's better than some of these other guys. There's a clear-cut top two, but he's right on the doorstep of that. And the argument can be made. I mean, it's no stretch to say he'd be six or seven. Um, So he's right there in the top ten of coaches. So that's interesting when you put it down on paper like that. Like, who else would you rather hire than him? The list is very, very short. Yeah, very short, and I think that's what makes it interesting. To me, the answer is no, he's not. And the reason is simple. He's won nothing. As a head coach, not a single thing, not a division well, title. Could you be a top five coach if, if only four guys have won something? Yeah, and that's the next question to ask. And, and the answer would be no. I'd go back to somebody who still won something. You know, I'd, I'd still say, well, Gus Malzahn has won something. Kirby Smart's won something. And, and that may sit really bad with a lot of Gator fans. But the Kirby, rea- I did not mention him, yes. Yeah, the reality is you have to win something to be a top five coach in anything. Otherwise, we're getting really nitpicking. You're throwing out guys who have had uneven results. But if Dan Mullen won 10 games every single year and never won anything, he would not be a top five coach in any regard he'd be the ultimate gatekeeper now I'm not saying that's what he's gonna be clearly there's plenty of reasons to be excited the fact that we're even having this conversation is wonderful he's doing a phenomenal job as we've said but that answer for me is simple although we can consider it and talk about it no you have got to win something you have to be a champion of something and winning a lot of games and winning nothing doesn't get you there. It's not a knock against him. That's just what it would take to be in my top five criteria. So I would do things that would make Tyler Emery go crazy, like put Kirby Smart ahead of Dan Mullen right now, because he's won something, and oh, by the way, he's also beaten Dan Mullen every single year. So to put him over Kirby, because you feel like Dan's a better developer and a bunch of other things, feelings don't win titles, wins do. And again, I'm not trying to be harsh against Dan. I just think that's a reality you have to look at. I certainly hope that the answer to this conversation after next year is yes, 
because it will be year three. It's a big year. Dan knows it. We all know it. I want this to be yes. I'm loving who Dan Mullen is as a person more and more every year, which makes me want to root for him so much more. And I already do. He's the, he's the head coach of my football team, but so much more seeing what kind of person he is, how he cares about this university, how he loves this job. I want him to be here forever, which means I want him to win. But I think right now that's a no for me. If I put you on the spot, could you do your top five list for me? Well, if we're going under the criteria I listed, it's it's uh, Sabo. That's yeah. one and two, right? Yeah. Right there. Uh, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go Lincoln Riley, even though he's won nothing. Which well, is, he's won which is Big fair, Twelve championships. Won Big Twelve championships been to the playoffs, but I'm gonna go to the fact of he hasn't won a title. But it doesn't matter. He's won those things. Uh, and Dan Mullen's not coaching in the Big Twelve. So if you want to go to the world, Dan Mullen won the Big Twelve again. We can't get into all these hypotheticals. Uh, we'll go Kirby Smart above him there. Right now, would I take Ryan Day over Dan Mullen? It's too early. That's I'll give you a different one. That's too early. Okay. Because you don't know what the Ryan Day program is going to look like. He's You come off the heels of Urban Meyer, it takes a Will Muschamp to screw that crap up. Ryan Day coming off Urban Meyer 2.0, not screwing it up. So um, we're at four there. And now this is where, where's Dan Mullen rank? Who's your, who's your fifth? I think you, right? I know what you were going to say and Jimbo. And so I'm going Jimbo Fisher for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's a no brainer for me, Jimbo Fisher over Dan Mullen right now. And then I think you get into the categories where now we're going to split some hairs, but I'm fine if you put Dan Mullen at six. Gus Malzahn is an uneven wreck and disaster. Would I want him at Florida? No, but he's won a lot of stuff, period. I mean, you just can't take it away from him. Not every coach is going to be uber consistent every year. Some coaches are wild. That's Gus Malzahn. He's a one-of-a-kind guy, but you can't take away what he's done when it comes to winning, including beating some excellent Alabama teams. Dan Mullen has not done that yet. So I think that's why if we're going to get into it, you have to truly consider that. Don't let the Gator sort of rose glasses cover your eyes and say, man, but Dan's done all these great things. Dan hasn't beaten those teams yet. Still haven't beaten Georgia. Still haven't won a division championship. Still haven't done those things. So to rank him above someone else who has done those things seems a little bit early to me. Yeah, and I, I think there's some guys you start to put in that equation. Brian Kelly, you know, James Franklin. There's certain guys who are at the preeminent spots in their position. But especially no Chris Peterson, no um, Urban Meyer. I think Dan is working his way up that list. And if he wins the SEC championship next year, I think he – solidifies himself very clearly in the top five and, you know, sits out just outside the Sabo combo. And, you know, we'll see. It's going to be really interesting in the next couple of years because um, he has everything in place for him, including facilities. Like the next five years for Dan Mullen should be stellar. We'll see. Can he live up to it? It's going to be an exciting journey. Okay. Dan said something. Interesting in his postgame presser, he said something similar before, but going from four wins to 10 wins is difficult, but going from 10 wins to 11 wins is a lot more difficult than going from four wins to 10 wins. And then even harder is going from 11 wins to 12 wins. Would you agree with that assessment? Oh, a million percent. You and I have talked about this. In fact, one of the main reasons why I picked Florida to win really 10 games every year that Dan Mullen's been here, nine or 10 games. It's because you look at the schedule and you say, just by default, if you get your coaching right with the talent that we have, we're going to win at least eight or nine games. And that's what Dan is saying. With competent coaching that understands how to put together 
an overall team structure and philosophy, which Urban was so good at, which Dan certainly learned from, you're going to win nine or 10 games of Florida. That's just the reality. He's indicating that. He would not say this is true at all schools. I think that's what's important. This is unique to the University of Florida and the other elite programs. 10 to 11 now means you probably have to beat at least one powerhouse team to get there. Now this year, this is what's kind of odd, is we didn't have to do that. We won 11 games, but did we beat a powerhouse? It depends on what you feel about Auburn, but... You know, good team, yes. Good team, yes. Power, probably not. But either way, that means we took care of business in all the other games, which again is great. But it's harder. It's obviously harder, right? 11 to 12 means you absolutely beat a powerhouse. You guaranteed beat a powerhouse. If you're in the SEC... Unless you're Clemson. Correct. If you're in the SEC, you have to beat a powerhouse. If you're Clemson, you don't. They beat Ohio State, so they got theirs too. But to get to 11 is one thing. To get to 12 guaranteed top five win. That is when you enter the top five coach status. And I think Dan Mullen knows that. And I think one of the best things for me, Alan, was to see the end of the Orange Bowl game. And remember when Jim Mack went, we talked about how great it was to have won 10 games and how happy we should be when he got just obliterated in the SEC title game. Because look at us, we're winning 10 games. This is so great. Gator fans should be stoked. Dan Mullen wasted no time afterwards saying, went from 4 to 10 and 10 to 11, and next year we're going from 11 to 12. That's what the team has got to understand. That is everything you want in your leader. There was no look at us, let's throw a parade. We've won 11 games. Gator fans, aren't you excited we're back? No. We have to now go from 11 to 12. And hey, team, that's harder than what you just did. I love every second of that kind of soundbite, that kind of comment in that moment to the cameras because that is not coach speak and that's not for the fans. That is what he believes and is what he is doing And by default, that makes you pass a three-year test. But most importantly, he's totally right. This is an exact proper caricature of your first three years of coaching. Bad team to good team. I love it. Yeah, especially the way our schedule sets up. I mean, there's certain years where going 11 and 1 might be a much bigger accomplishment than going 12 and 0. Um, If we ever get to a year where Tennessee is great and Florida State is great and Miami is great and LSU is great and Georgia is great, uh, that would be a murderous schedule to go through to get to 12 and 0. A going 11 and 1 against that schedule would be much more of an accomplishment than what we than going 12 and 0 against next year's schedule, I think. So, um in our current context, I think you're absolutely right. And getting to 12 and 0 next year is going to be extremely challenging because of the top tier teams you're going to have to play, but if you but it's doable. And I think for the first time, if you had said that 2 years ago, it's like, yeah, there's maybe a small chance. And this year, maybe a small chance. Um, but it's actually in view right now. And remains to be seen whether we can accomplish it or not. But the fact that we even can open the door and go, yeah, we could do that, is a pretty great place for this program to be. Oh, phenomenal. It's fun. and It's the first time since we've done the podcast, Alan, whereas I sit here looking into our off-season shows and looking into next year, I'm excited that we could compete for an SEC championship. We'll still be an underdog in that title game, almost certainly, given the fact that we still don't have the top, top talent. But if things go the way they are, for the first time that I've sat in this podcasting chair doing this podcast, I can look on the horizon and say, this year, 2020, if we stay healthy heading into the season, we could compete legitimately for some hardware. 
And that is the signal that we're back at some level. That means you've climbed the mountain and you're there. And then guess what? You got to actually do it on the field, which we will see. But I'm excited about it. It's going to be really fun talking about it. And I'm looking forward to what this spring brings to our roster, how we recruit, and then what Dan does with some of the new pieces that we will have heading into next season. Let's recap the bowl games, Alan. We'll go through some of these quickly. We'll talk about the overall record. Uh, but first, the sponsor of all of our bowl game picking and all our picking all year long, mybookie.ag. No one gives you more ways to win than they do. MyBookie's got the fastest payouts and better lines than any other sports book. Join now and MyBookie will double your first deposit. Use the promo code GATORNATION to activate the offer. Again, that's promo code GATORNATION. Visit MyBookie.ag today. You play, you win, and you get paid. I entered this week, Alan. I'm going I'm <laughs> to set this up for you so you can read them. But I entered this week 1-7 in the bowl games, and you were 5-3. and three. I did a little better, but I'm now 12-20. and 20. Horrific. And you are 18 and 14. The good news was the games that mattered that we knew anything about, the playoff games, we both went 2 and 0 versus spread. So there is a silver line in there, but I'm getting trounced. I have some bowl games left, but it's not looking pretty. Walk us through the ones that have already happened. Okay, we'll pick up where we left off last time. Let's start with the illustrious bad boy mowers, Gasparilla Bowl. UCF came in as a 17 point favorite against Marshall. And they won 48 to 25. They took care of business. Neither you nor I picked them to do that. We kind of <laughs> felt like they'd swoon at the end. Yeah, maybe a hate pick against UCF. I think this game meant something to UCF. I think they are hearing the noise that is now being generated, that their time has passed. Uh, we'll see how long they hang on to their time. All right. Hawaii versus BYU in the SoFi Hawaii Bowl. Hawaii wins 38-34. You can't just come to the island of Hawaii <laughs> and beat Hawaii. You can't come to the mainland. You can't do it. They're really hard to beat there. It's true. They really are. And Hawaii takes care of business against the traditional rival. Okay. The walk-ons, Independence Bowl. Louisiana Tech shuts out Miami 14-0. Rough and bad look for my guy, Manny Diaz. In the end of the year here. Dan Enos gets fired, the offensive coordinator, for a zero-point production. Really disappointing year, to say the least, for Manny Diaz. Right, Miami not that they were, were supposed to be like winning anything. No, but. but Miami fans were like in a frenzy over how stoked they were about getting this guy. He's the guy. He's the right guy. Right now, it's really hard to find some positives out of this season. It doesn't trend with other really good coaches who have bad records in season one. Because he has some losses that are abysmal. And again, when you have equal or better talent and you lose more than one game against lesser talent, that's bad. That's right. real bad. And losing 14 nothing to Louisiana Tech is extremely bad. So our friend Chipper texted me during this game and asked if there was any percentage chance they fire him. And I said no. Despite this being a terrible result, they really want for him to succeed, even more than, I think, the average hire because of his legacy in Miami, the perceived fit. You talk about culture fit and, like, everything else. I mean, this is, like, A-plus for them. Now, he is a first-time head coach at Miami. There, there were going to be some bumps in the road, but you were hoping by the end of the year they had sorted out. Not to say he can't be successful, but it's not – I'm sure there are people who are less thrilled – about it right now than 
they were when they made that hire. And the silver lining is he's recruiting very well. Eighth in 2019 or 2020, sorry, and, and sixth or fifth in 2021. So like he's trending significantly up to their recruiting, which is what people thought he'd be good at. But recruiting does not make a champion. You have to have that formula. We will see. But coaching wise in the field this year was definitely not what they wanted. Okay, the quick lane bowl pit goes down. Well, goes down in the spread. They win the game 34-30, to 30, so we both picked Eastern Michigan to cover. That feels like a victory for us, I guess. It is a victory for us. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't pick them to win, but they got inside of it. Outside of that, who really cares about the quick lane bowl? <laughs> the military, Brazil, military bowl presented by Northrop Grumman. That's a mouthful. North Carolina wallops Temple 55-13. I think UNC is going to be one of those teams that gets a big bowl bump. I'm putting that in quotes because every year someone gets too high on somebody's performance. And now the North Carolina is not going to be good, but I think people are going to be a little high on them next year. Let's give some credit to Mac Brown here. Yeah. Phenomenal season. Gets rode out of Texas. Had done obviously very well there, then really kind of fell apart. Doesn't coach for many years. Comes in North Carolina, a place that's very hard to coach, and has a really great season. Almost beats Clemson. Wow. So this proves what Dan Mullen said, by the way. If you have a certain level of team structure and organization, by default, your team will improve. And that's what you saw happen in North Carolina. I don't think the sky's limit for Mac Brown anymore. He has his issues. But if you're a North Carolina fan, you have to be pleased that you're even football relevant. That's a nice win for them over Temple. The new era pinstripe bowl, Michigan State wins 27-21 over the Demon Deacons of Wake Forest. I can't believe Michigan State scored 27 points and covered in this game. That seems like maybe the the heroic bowl win of the season. Indeed. The Academy Sports Plus Outdoors Texas Bowl, Oklahoma State, Texas A&M. Texas A&M wins 24-21. A good win for them. Back and forth game. Really competitive bowl game for one that is sort of outside of the radar. But Jimbo Fisher gets a nice win. Really weird season. I think most AM fans were wise to recognize from the beginning this was not going to be a great season for them. They played a murderer's row of a schedule, including and a, a really bowl young game team that was too. also really hard. So I think Jimbo Fisher is probably quietly sitting around thinking, this is a great season to forge this team, and the next season could be something. I still don't think they're quite ready yet. Someone really had this team far away from being elite at all the different positions. We'll see what's happening, but obviously I'm a big believer in Jimbo. The San Diego County Credit Union Holiday Bowl. USC gets kind of run off the field by Iowa 24 to 49. This is this is just everything you don't want if you're a USC fan. They're up in arms. They didn't want to keep Helton, and he's there. He is a total dumpster fire. And again, if Urban is not actually coming next year, which I really don't think he is, they're gonna have to try to explain how in the world they kept this guy around. Yeah. Bad look for my guy, Clay. Cheese it. Cheese it. The Cheese It Bowl. Air Force wins. Beats the Washington State Cougars 31-21. Horrific year for my boy, Mike Leach. They lost a lot of close games. They they go down to a good Air Force team. They yeah, were the underdogs. Very good Air Force team. And I think Mike Leach will chalk this up just to a, a year where they lost a lot of close games. But either way, if you're a Mike Leach fan, this was one of his more forgettable seasons. Sure. And I, I think if you're Washington State, you'll take – the good with the bad there. The Goodyear Cotton Bowl, Memphis, gets beaten fairly handily by Penn State here. A lot of points in this game. They win 53-39. to Yeah, two things to take away here. One, this is why I think that Mike Norvell will run a really good offense at Florida State, is Memphis was able to score almost at will on Penn State. Yes, it's a bowl game, but that means something. 
and Memphis plays absolutely no defense, which traditionally, Allen, <coughs> carries over. These coaches that are all offensive coaches, it does follow them to the bigger program. So keep an eye on that at Florida State if that does, in fact, follow them. But I fully expect Florida State's offense to be very good. I don't think what Mike Norvell does is fluky. I think it's solid. I think it's good. I think in time with the athletes they have, they will be formidable on the offensive side of the ball. Agreed. And, yeah, the question will remain, can he succeed at a high-level, at a high-level program? The Camping World Bowl, Notre Dame puts it on my clones, 33-9. to You know, quietly a very good year for Notre Dame. Um, lost some of their more high-profile games, got – beat by Michigan pretty soundly at a time when that wasn't a good look. Um, but, you know, if you look back on the season, I mean, that really fairly successful despite the fact they weren't up high in the rankings. Yeah, I think they had some some results they wanted. They were physically competitive with Georgia. Georgia obviously wasn't the Georgia that they've been previously, but there were some marks that I think the Brian Kelly detractors at Notre Dame felt like, okay, they're making some changes. We're taking some steps in the right direction. The Serve Pro first responder bowl. I'm sure you watched a lot of this. Western Kentucky wins 23-20 over Western Michigan. Well, I said I was taking Western Kentucky because they're the more established Western school. <coughs> and they do win, but they were half a point short of covering. Oh, so man. disappointing there. The Franklin American Mortgage Music City Bowl. The Joe Moorhead-led Mississippi State gets beat by Louisville and Scott Satterfield. 28-38. Great season by Louisville coming off just what was a dumpster fire by Petrino. I mean, he kind of wrecked this program, and Satterfield's already resurrected it. Satterfield, to me, seems like a a guy I'd be interviewing. Uh, He is going to fly up the ranks next year if Louisville plays well again. What an incredibly quick turnaround by him. Indeed. Okay, the Red Box Bowl, Cal versus Illinois. Cal wins 35-20. Good win for Cal. They haven't been able to score any points since their quarterback went out. And Lovey Smith can't finish kind of a fairy tale, save his job season with some big wins that he had with a bull win. Yeah. Let's move on to the Belk Bowl. We saw some fists. We saw some flying Lynn Bowdens. Virginia Tech goes down to Kentucky 30-37. I continue to be amazed that Kentucky got this kind of performance and production and changing their offense entirely midseason and putting a wide receiver back there. Pretty incredible. This is amazing. You know, Kentucky got almost no play out of Lynn Bowden. I think the average college football fan may not even know who that is. And what he did this season is nothing short of remarkable. He throws the ball four to five times a game. They scored 37 points in this game. He was unstoppable on offense. Bud Foster's a legendary defensive coordinator. Just unbelievable, really, what Mark Stoops did in this season. I mean, this is an incredible, incredible season for him, given how much he lost. They deserve a lot of credit. It'd be kind of funny next year if they have a more traditional offense and they are less successful. Um, The Belk Bowl, that's what we just did. Moving on to even better name, Tony the Tiger Sun Bowl. FSU goes down to the Sun Devils of Arizona State, 14-20. to Yeah, both of you and I were on this one figuring this has got to be the least motivated Florida State team. You're sort of just surviving this season. Arizona State, this game meant a lot, and they're basically playing at home. So... Not surprising. Who really cares? I'm happy FSU lost yet again. It's always nice when they lose. A really quirky, fun game, the AutoZone Liberty Bowl. Navy beats Kansas State 20-17. Yeah, we both took Kansas State, so we snick in there for the points. Navy with a win. A good back-and-forth game. I actually caught a little bit of this game. 
Kansas State seems to be trending upwards. Navy, another good season. They kind of churn out good season after good season. Yeah, if they didn't run such a funky offense, I mean, I think everyone would be trying to hire that coach. But, you know, I don't know. If I was a lower-tier program looking to climb out of the hellhole that I was in, I would hire this guy, let him run his offense, and see what you can do with it. I mean, he's been successful every year at Navy, and that's not an easy place to win. All right, the Nova Home Loans Arizona Bowl. Wyoming beats Georgia State 38-17. I mean, I took this team because JT Raymond's favorite national champion preseason team was was Missouri. Me and too. Wyoming crushed them, and therefore I took them in the bowl game, and they rewarded me. So thank you, JT, for the backdoor pick. One of the weirder results of bowl season, the Valero Alamo Bowl. Utah goes down to Texas. Texas wins 38-10. to I don't know if anybody saw this kind of beatdown coming. No, this is the this to me actually is the bowl overreaction of the year. In fact, I've already seen articles where Texas will win the national championship next year. This solidifies their development. It was never this year; it was always next year, which you could make narratives for. They're young; they keep recruiting well; they're talented. He failed the three-year test, so I think you'd have to go outside of that to win anything. But the real result of this for me is that Utah face planted at the end of the year and continued what has been a predictable progression the team that has a playoff shot heading into the last week of the season and loses does not show up for their bowl game their quarterback came out afterwards and basically said we treated it as a vacation we didn't want to be there and that's a trend that's been existing every single year for whichever team that turns out to be so yeah if you're that if you're following that paradigm next year maybe you can make some money off that particular situation all right the outback bowl Golden Gophers rowing that boat past Auburn 31-24. And this is where it's like, well, wait a minute, James. Did you say Gus Malzahn was a top five coach? Well, I didn't say that I'd want to swap Dan <coughs> Mullen for Gus Malzahn. Those are different conversations, right? That's what's funny about the top five coach. Bo Nix is, is not good. He's not good. And I don't know how much better he's going to get in this offseason, but Auburn might have real problems with a quarterback who's really not very good. And P.J. Fleck of Minnesota, what a year. Amazing. What a year. This was a great win by them. I don't care it's a bowl game. I don't care it's the Outback Bowl. If you're Minnesota, you want to win these games. These do mean something, especially for your recruiting. Great season by him. Yeah, it's just what's funny about that. If you're playing the SEC, everybody's gunning for you. And you have to be up for these games. And this game clearly meant more to Minnesota than did Auburn. But still a good win. We like it's funny. We grade these on a curve. Like if you're an SEC non-SEC teams. All right, the Verbo Citrus Bowl, VRBO Citrus Bowl. I'm not sure. I've heard Verbo recently. We'll go with that. Michigan continues to fall flat on their face in some big moments. They lose to Alabama, 16 to 35. So at one point in time on this podcast, I wanted a Harbaugh over everyone else when we were hiring, and we got McElwain instead. Harbaugh would have been better than McElwain, but. I don't have words to explain the Jim Harbaugh tenure at Michigan. Very strange. I don't understand it. And they kind of circled this game, which I thought was very foolish. If I were Jim Harbaugh and I drew to play Alabama, I would not have been saying in the press, what a great opportunity. I would have said nothing. Because you go out here and you kind of mark this as like, boom, baby. We're playing the SEC. We're playing an elite team. We're going to show you what we're made of. Bama sits out like 10 daggone guys and beats you like a drum. That is not a good look, and Michigan fans are feeling it. If you go read their stuff right now, they don't even know what to do anymore because they're stuck like, well, what would you do? Who would you hire? Like, he is good, but 
I don't know. Disappointing if you're Michigan, though. They were competitive only to a certain extent, and that's an Alabama team that was like Alabama super light, and it didn't matter. Yeah, for sure. This is not a good result for them. Bama, I mean, if Bama loses this game, we've probably been like, yeah, they didn't care. And maybe they didn't care, and they still won. So, who knows? The Rose Bowl game presented by Northwestern Mutual still an amazing scene at the Rose Bowl, even if they tie up college football with their shenanigans too often. But Oregon wins a great game against Wisconsin, 28-27. Yeah, the Rose Bowl, the only magical bowl left, the only one that feels like it's got luster, and it, it certainly does with the parade and everything else, and they deliver with a really exciting game. Mario Cristobal, great season. If you're an Oregon fan, you are beyond excited that For one sure. Willie Taggart left your school and that you have a guy in Cristobal who is doing a really great job. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to put that. And we'll see. I mean, Oregon's going to have a challenge replacing Justin Herbert next year. Um, if they can, they could have a really good season. The All-State Sugar Bowl, Georgia, still puts it on Baylor 26-14. to I think we were all thinking that Baylor might keep this close. Some of the malaise that Utah felt Georgia would feel again. But apparently they didn't want to get embarrassed two years in a row. Yeah, I think it's important to note that the Big 12 is just slightly above the ACC. And that's just a reality. If you look at postseason performance and everything else, Baylor being so competitive in the Big 12 just means that they are a totally average SEC team, as indicated by the fact that Georgia sat out almost all of their best players. They have not had a great season, and they handled this game. Really similar to finish. Baylor got points near the end, made it kind of interesting, uh, but... Not exciting win for Georgia. Georgia fans are left wondering what's going on. They have so much talent. They're still going to be top five next year. Uh, either way, keep an eye on them. The ticket smarter Birmingham Bowl. Boston College gets waxed by Cincinnati 6-38. Good year by Cincinnati. Boston College is already waving the white flag. Yeah, Luke Fickle, another Urban Meyer guy doing really well. The Urban Meyer coaching tree suddenly is very strong. If you want to count Dan Mullen as one, which I think you should, and you want to look at Ryan Day and Luke Fickle. These guys are doing really, really well. There's something to what Urban was able to do when it comes to program development. Okay. Lastly, before we get to the playoffs, the Tax Slayer Gator Bowl, Indiana versus Tennessee. Tennessee pulls one out at the very end, wins 23-22. Yeah, if you didn't see it, Tennessee had to score twice with like not a lot of time remaining to be able to win this game, and they do it capping an improbable, if not almost impossible, run where they won six of their last seven games, only losing to Alabama. They beat three bowl teams after winning just one game to start the year. Does this mean that Pruitt's going to go win something? No, it probably doesn't. But if you're a Tennessee fan, you went from like certain despair in the month of September to now you've got a top 13 or 14 class coming in potentially. Yeah, You just went on a tear winning football games. You exercise some demons towards the end. You sneak out a win against what was really a very good Indiana team, as we said. So this is not where you want to be as Tennessee, but it's something for sure. Yeah, and it kind of cuts into what was a really great Indiana season. I think they've only been to 12 bowl games in the last like 100 years. So, and that's not, I'm not making that up. I think I actually, that's a real stat. So that would have been a really nice win for them, but a great season regardless. All right, the playoff games. The Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl saw LSU and Joe Burrow go video game-like on Oklahoma. Crazy. I mean, seven touchdowns. It probably could have been 10 or 11 or 12 if they didn't back it off. They beat Oklahoma 63-28. to Oklahoma is now winless in the playoff, only really playing one close game. Yeah, this is, I mean, 
whoever was in this four slot was going to get probably annihilated. I mean, Oklahoma looked really bad. This is not the best of these Oklahoma teams. Their defense was maybe slightly better on paper, but you know, losing some of their guys, they had no shot in this game. But still, LSU so impressive on offense. They were just ripping through them. Oklahoma couldn't slow them down at all. And this was this is what we talked about early in the year, right? We said very early there. The, here are the tier one teams, and LSU for a second was not one of them. Then they emerged, and it became very very obvious by the middle of the year that you had three teams that were way better than everyone else. And then Alabama before Tua got hurt. So you had four teams that were right there. Those are your four. That was obvious. It really remained that way. And like you said, the four slot, whoever you wanted to stick in there was going to lose. You would have done the best you could have by putting an SEC team in there because they would have been the most competitive for sure. If you look at us against LSU, that's case in point with that. Uh, But what LSU is doing, I'm going to make a big statement here. If LSU can beat Clemson and beat them convincingly, this might be the greatest season in the history of college football by any one college football team. And that may sound huge, but take Clemson. If they win a national title, they'll be one of the greatest dynasties in the history of college football. These are true statements. So if when you, you say you look greatest at the season, you mean like, like uh, that they, you stack them up against they're one of the best teams or their accomplishments because of the schedule they had to play? Correct. Their individual football season will have been one of the best ever. Looking at who they beat, how they beat them, how they did it. Whether they're one of the greatest teams, I'm going to have to say I don't think so because that defense just isn't quite strong enough. Yeah, isn't but as talented. individual season, they're in that argument. And it, it, a lot has to be done here. Uh, but let's go to the Fiesta Bowl and then we'll set that game up here in a second. Ohio State, Clemson, really interesting game. Clemson wins 29-23. So many good moments. This, Allen, is why... The playoff is so great because at one point in time, you would have had only one versus two and you would have missed this game. Amazing. So now we get two games. This is one of them. What a football game. I love this game. So many big moments. I mean, very controversial moments, but seeing Clemson kind of hang on there and then come back, you knew once Ohio State was kicking all those field goals that it might bite them in the butt. And gosh, I mean, it was just an incredible game. Haymaker after haymaker there at the end of the game. Did you think that Ohio State has a legitimate gripe about this game in terms of the refereeing? I think that there's one play that is so hard to referee but confuses me with how we referee, and that's going to be the the interception fumble. Because they ruled it a touchdown on the field, from what we've always seen, whether it's the NFL or college, it takes indisputable evidence I think however they ruled that originally, it should have stayed. I still to this day don't know. The rules are confusing. What's a catch and not a catch is confusing. If you're in the backyard, he caught that football. But that's not how college and the NFL does it. You have to look at the rules. Sure. I'm surprised they overturned it. The other calls to me were more or less fine. I didn't see anything crazy with them. I think they made sense. But that call, if I were if I, if it were my team, that call being called a touchdown on the field and then overturned, I have a hard time thinking you could explain to me why that's yeah. So here's the problem the with some of that. I, I don't know. That's very true, but I think what they've done is let some of these plays play out. Right? If you whistle it dead, then you erase that touchdown. But then if you always default to it being a fumble, then you're you're never. And then you go back to the logic of logic. It has to be irrefutable evidence so if you're Clemson you can't have it both ways you can't like 
hope that they let you run it in and always keep that call. So when I look at that play, I do think it was a fumble, but I go, I don't know. It's close. So if it, if I can say that, then I don't think you can cry foul. Now, that's a 50-50 call that didn't go your way. Really where Ohio State blew this game was in the first half when they should have opened up a much bigger lead when they had the advantage and they let Clemson back in this game. They don't have anybody to blame but themselves. Now, that was a, certainly a game-changing play, but they could have scored. They had the ball at the end of the game. They threw an interception. So, and they were on defense before that. So right. game change, game altering, sure. Game changing, sure. But there was still a lot of game left. Right. And I never want to minimize bad calls, but I think to me a bad call is when it's like the Saints game against the Vikings. Like, that point. is a bad call. That call, wherever end you fall on, no way. And the targeting call is the definition of targeting. I have no problem with that. Right. But I, I, I don't know. I don't see the Ryan Day incredible anger over calls that ruined it for them. I don't see that game being decided by that. Yeah, and it's I don't know, it's tough that when there's a controversial call, you don't want to see that. But this was a great game regardless. Yeah, great game. Trevor Lawrence kind of cementing right now his legacy, looking to become a true college football legend with the national championship game, which is not taking place on Monday. It's now taking place next Monday, the 13th. Why they've added another week there, who knows? Keep extending it. LSU is now favored by five and a half. So we had said before LSU played Oklahoma, they would have been an underdog. The optics of that game versus Clemson's incredibly slow start versus Ohio State is leading the odds makers to favor LSU. Totally understandable. Who do you like in this one? It's hard to look at what LSU did in that game and not pick them. They obliterated Clemson or uh, Oklahoma. Now Clemson is a different team. They have a different level of defense, but I don't know that anyone is going to be able to slow them down enough. It's hard to pick against LSU, and if I'm going to pick LSU, that number is still small enough that doesn't turn me away. So I'm going to stay with those Tigers, the Bayou Bengals. Yeah, I said before I picked Clemson to win it all that LSU feels like this is their season. By all optics, statistics, look at, it feels like it's theirs. I've gone with Clemson because of, I think, what I saw against Ohio State. They have a championship belief about themselves. And, and that was like a heavyweight fight where the challenger does almost everything they need to do early, but they don't knock out the champion. Champion comes back. Champion gets in the game. Champion finishes the game. LSU is a much different beast than Ohio State. If Dobbins doesn't go down for Ohio State, maybe they win that game. On paper, Clemson has got a serious problem with their safeties. They play two safeties who were nice in the ACC and are going to get annihilated by LSU. I have no idea how they address that. As I'd mentioned, I hadn't watched Clemson on film a lot this season. Um, having seen that now, that would scare me big time. I don't think they have the proper talent to cover LSU spreading them out. With that being said, I'm going to stick with Clemson because I stuck with them before. And I think when you've won as many games as they've had, and again, they are in the midst, in my opinion, Alan. If they win this national championship, that's three of the last four, right? They've been to the final now. An infinite number of years. An we infinite number of years. I can't high. count that high, right? But they will have also done it beating really good football teams. I mean, look at who Clemson is beating in to win national era. championships. Yeah, like, this is crazy. This is not a downtime for college football. It's an incredibly high time for college football. And LSU, the same thing. LSU would have had to have gone through all of these great teams all season long, then face an, an incredible team in Clemson, the team of, 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 you know, really 
the post-Alabama era, taking down Nick Saban, just a team with so much momentum. What a season it'll be for them. This is like everything you dream of in a national title. And to cap it all off, it's in New Orleans. Could you create a better Cajun story? This thing is at home in New Orleans. It is going to be mayhem in Louisiana. If Clemson can win that game, they really cement themselves as one of the greatest four-year runs we've seen in college football. I'm stoked for it. I'm going to stick with Clemson. But everything in me says this is LSU season. They're going to win this thing. I'm going to stick with Clemson because they're the champs and they've done it before. I think if they had better safeties, they could do some things. I don't know what they're going to do. You can't, LSU will make you play a matchup based defense and you can't avoid it. They can't avoid it. They're going to get both of their safeties matched up with elite receivers. And I don't think that's going to go well for them. Well, Dabo gets to play the disrespect card again that they're going to be the underdog. I mean, he's been playing that to the hilt, even though I don't think anyone really disrespects Clemson. But he's using that to his advantage. He's got that team rallied around him. It's going to be a really fun game. Even if LSU puts the pedal to the metal, the whole time you're going to be waiting for Clemson to close that gap, whether they do or not. So really looking forward to it. And I think, Alan, the way Clemson wins is the way Florida almost won. You're going to have to have Trevor Lawrence play an amazingly great game. LSU's defense, although it's gotten better, is still not really super solid. He's going to need to score 40-plus points, I think, to win. I think he's going to have to play oh, for sure. his, his NFL kind of legendary Hall of Fame game because Joe Burrow is going to score 35, 40 yeah. points on this on this. Clemson Barring like one of those very, very strange, like quirky, quirky fumbles, weird tip picks, like LSU is going to score 40. Can you do that? I think they can. Can they score 50? Because LSU score, could have scored 100 against Oklahoma if they wanted to. 100. That was in play. And obviously, they didn't need to do that, so they didn't. But crazy. The numbers they're putting up are mind-boggling. Yeah, and keep in mind, Clemson went down 16 nothing and held Ohio State to one touchdown for the rest of the game. So yeah. that defense got a lot better, but it's just, it's just different. LSU plays NFL-style offense. They force their safeties to cover. They can't cover. That's Clemson's weakness. It seems like super strength versus super weakness. And in, in a championship game, that typically dictates who wins. Should be really fun. Any final thoughts, Alan? Nah, just excited for this game. I you know, love those playoff games, even watching LSU obliterate Oklahoma. And this is a potentially all-time matchup. I can't wait for it. I'm really, really excited for it. Wait, we shall, though. We're still many days away from the national championship Unfortunately for all of you beloved podcast fans, we will not be back on the air until after National Signing Day. So we are taking a nice month-long break from podcasting. We certainly hope you've enjoyed everything the 2019 season has brought us as we emerge here into 2020. We look forward to continuing to bring you all of the great content that you enjoy. As always, if you have any feedback, any suggestions, anything you want to see us cover, especially during the off-season where we will be doing some creative episodes on football schematics and other things, please send them to us and we will include them in the show. We look forward to seeing all of you in February.